Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I want to have ears that are ready to hear what you say to us. We want to have soft hearts. We want to be just ready to receive what you have for us this morning. So we praise you, Jesus. We love you. We honor you. And we just ask that your will be done this morning in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. I'm getting in that tinning noise again that we had last week. So hopefully we can get that fixed. Um, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And I just want to make a quick announcement about in a few weeks on July 5th, the first Sunday in July, we are going to resume all types of normal activities on Sunday morning. So there'll be growth groups for all ages. That includes children, youth, and adults. And then during the worship service, we will have um, children's church as well for, for third, grade, or third grade on down and also for babies. I'm still getting that. I'm not sure if... Is it working? Okay, we did a test before we started, but you know how it is. We're making sure you're awake this morning. You guys okay? You can turn me down on the monitors, and I'm not sure. Okay, that's probably all right. Is that good? Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Okay. I'm just playing around. So let's go ahead and get started. When my oldest son, Aiden, he's, he's 23, when he was three years old, when he was a little boy, we used to play this game in the kitchen. He would stand on the kitchen counter, and I would stand back a little bit, and I would say, Aiden, do you trust your daddy to catch you? And he would say, yes, daddy, and he would jump out into my arms. And then I'd take a step back and say, Aiden. Do you trust Daddy to catch you? Well, of course, Daddy, and he would jump out into my arms. Then I'd step back a little bit and say, Aiden, do you trust Daddy to catch you? Well, of course, Daddy, and he'd jump into my arms. And so I knew how far I could get back before it would be dangerous. But there was no hesitation whatsoever in Aiden jumping into my arms. It it was amazing. He never flinched. He never stopped. He never scratched his head and said, now, wait a minute. I'm not sure if my Daddy can catch me. When Daddy said... Do you trust me to catch you? What did he do? He just jumped. He trusted his daddy. He just jumped with reckless abandon into my arms. And this is an illustration of childlike faith. A kind of faith that when Jesus calls to you, you just jump with no questions asked. It's that reckless abandon type of faith where you absolutely just trust in the Lord. And I wonder how many of us have lost that type of faith, that childlike faith when it comes to Jesus. Now, why do I bring up this account of Aiden jumping into my arms? Well, today 
Luke is going to introduce us to Mary, the mother of Jesus, whose faith, and as I've been reading about Mary, her faith puts a lot of people in the Bible to shame. Some of the big names in the Bible to shame. Her faith is amazing. We will see that this morning. If you remember last week where we left off, Gabriel, the angel, announces to Zechariah that they're going to have a son, John the Baptist. And how does Zechariah respond? He doesn't believe the angel. And so in an act of discipline, he is struck mute. He can't speak. And right on the tails of this, the same angel, Gabriel, is going to announce the birth of Jesus to Mary. So these are parallel accounts. Gabriel appears to Zechariah. Gabriel appears to Mary. They're similar but very different. They're sequential, but they're not quite the same. There's major differences. So let's read this very famous passage of Scripture. As I said, we'll probably be doing Christmas in July this year because Luke takes us through these birth narratives. But let's pick up in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This passage of scripture nicely divides into three different sections, three different vignettes, three different scenes that give us insight in historically what's been called the Annunciation. This is technically historically called the Annunciation. It's just Latin for the word announcement. This is the announcement of Gabriel the angel to Mary about the birth of Jesus. So let's just see these three scenes unfold. So here's the first. The first is the obscure setting. The obscure setting. We see this in verses 26 through 27. In the sixth month, the sixth month of what? Well, Elizabeth's pregnancy. 
Remember last week, she hid herself for five months and then she came out. So now she's six months pregnant and the angel Gabriel is sent by God to the city of Galilee, or to, the, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth. Nazareth is never mentioned in historical documents outside the Bible. Nobody had ever heard of Nazareth. Let me give you an example. Oftentimes when you read the news or there's national headlines, you always hear about the Front Range. It always happens in Denver or it always happens in Colorado Springs. Very rarely will national news have Sterling in the headlines. It's always Denver or somewhere on the Front Range. But that's where people know. I can't tell you how many times I travel. I go, on, I go to conferences, I travel, I meet other pastors, even sometimes in our own state, and I tell them I'm from Sterling, Colorado, and they look at you with a blank look. Well, where's that? Where's Sterling, Colorado? And what do you have to tell them? Or an hour and a half or two hours northeast of Denver. Oh, okay, I know where that is. I know where Denver is, but I have no idea where Sterling is. Okay. So we live in a town where nobody knows where it is. Or in Pete's or some of these other places where Fleming. We live in Fleming, Colorado. I don't know. That's the same thing with Nazareth. In Mary's day, nobody knew where Nazareth was. Well, they knew where Rome was. They knew where Jerusalem was. But Nazareth was probably a little village of maybe 500 people. A tiny rural village. Now compare Nazareth to how the angel Gabriel announces the birth of John the Baptist. Where was that announced? In Jerusalem, the big city. Where? In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, prime real estate for any Israelite. So John the Baptist's birth is announced in Jerusalem. Jesus' birth is announced to a girl in the backwoods of nowhere in Nazareth. Zechariah was a man of prominence. He was a priest. He was a male. He had a good reputation. He was highly educated. He was in the big city. Mary, probably poor, probably uneducated, Nobody knew who she was. She was probably, most scholars believe, maybe 13, 14, 15 years old at this time. The age of betrothal back then was about 13 or 14. So she's a young teenage girl. And it's very significant that this is the way God would orchestrate things. To announce the birth of Jesus to a little girl who nobody knew who she was. She's not royalty. She's not a princess. She's not fashionable. She doesn't come from the cultural center of Jerusalem. She's a peasant girl living a fairly average life in a rural village that no one knows about. And that's exactly how God likes to work. Do you know what God chooses to do oftentimes? God often chooses the things that the world thinks are important and he turns the tables on that, and he chooses the lowly, he chooses the despised, he chooses the weak, he chooses the rural, he chooses the out of the way. He chooses things differently than maybe the way the world would orchestrate things. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What does the world value? Prominence, prestige, power, popularity. That's what the world values. Think about it. If Madison Avenue was to orchestrate how Jesus was to come into the world, how would they do it? They wouldn't pick Mary. They wouldn't pick a rural out of the world girl that, that nobody knew about. They would pick somebody that was royal, somebody from a prominent family, maybe in Paris, Rome, New York, Los Angeles, Tokyo. They would not pick a peasant girl uneducated that nobody knew about from the backwoods of nowhere in Nazareth. So in this obscure setting, in a place that even in their day nobody knew where it was, God chose this young, uneducated, poor, rural peasant girl to be the mother of Jesus. And that should give us great encouragement that God sees things differently than the way the world sees things. So number one is the obscure setting. This out-of-the-place village in Nazareth and this girl that nobody had ever heard of, Mary. All right, let's look at the second scene. Second, we find the angelic announcement itself. The annunciation, the announcement. This is in verses 28 through 33. Notice how Gabriel greets her. Verse 28, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Down in verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Oh, favored one. Mary's found favor. Now, we need to understand what this means. Does this mean that somehow Mary was good and she earned this favor by being a good little Israelite girl? Did she earn this? Did she merit this? Was this something that she did? I'm not trying to be offensive here this morning, but in Roman Catholic theology, when they say Hail Mary, full of grace, what they believe about Mary is that she actually can dispense grace or give people grace if they pray to her. They misinterpret this passage of Scripture. It wasn't that Mary is the giver of grace to those who pray to her. It's that she was the recipient of grace, undeserved Highly favored means she's been graced. The only other place in the Bible where that word is used is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says, To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What it literally means is, Mary, you have been showered with sovereign grace. You don't deserve this grace. It's an unexpected grace. You weren't looking for this grace. You didn't choose this grace. God looked upon you, and you did not deserve it, but he's showing you sovereign grace. He's choosing you to be the mother of Jesus. Now, she's greatly troubled. Number one, you'd be troubled if an angel spoke to you. And number two, you'd be thinking, what do you mean I'm highly favored? What does this mean? 
What's the announcement? What does the actual angel Gabriel say to her? Well, verse 31 is the announcement. What does he say to her? Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary, you're going to give birth to a boy, and you're going to call him Jesus. Now, why Jesus? Yeshua. What does it mean? The Lord saves. That's what Jesus means. The Lord saves. You're going to name your child the Lord saves. And then in verses 32 through 33, Gabriel gives five declarations of who Jesus is going to be. And these all come from the Old Testament. They're all prophecies about the coming Messiah. So let's look at these five declarations in verses 32 and 33 that that the... uh, angel Gabriel gives about Jesus. And behold, this is verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 35, he will be great. He will be great with no qualification. Now, you may think, well, that's interesting. He will be great. Do you realize in the Old Testament, only Yahweh, the Lord, was called great. No mere man, no mere child would be called great. It's an attribute of God never attributed to a human being. In Psalm 86.10, Phil read this earlier in our call to worship. For you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. It's attributed to God. Only God is great. Psalm 92.5, oh, how great are your works, our Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. What Gabriel's saying here is that your son, Mary, is going to be God in the flesh. The absolute deity of Christ. He's going to be great. Only God is great and your son is going to be God in the flesh. Second, he will be son of the Most High. Most High. In the Old Testament, that's Elion. It was the one true living God who was supreme and sovereign and majestic. It was the fact that The Most High God was sovereign over all things. Psalm 717, I will give to the Lord thanks to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Jesus will be great. He will be the Son of the Most High. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son who's always existed, but is going to be conceived in Mary's womb as God in the flesh. He will be great. He will be son of the most high. Now the next three descriptions all come from the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, Nathan the prophet comes to David and says, here's what the Lord's going to do about your kingship, about your throne. In 2 Samuel 7, 13, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David, you're going to have a kingdom forever, God says. 2 Samuel 7, 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David, you're going to have an eternal throne. And then we read this at Christmas time also from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David 
and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what does Gabriel say there? At the end of verse 32, the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, that eternal throne. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. It's going to be an everlasting kingdom that Jesus will rule over in the lineage of David. Daniel 7.14 is also a prophecy about Jesus. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. How does the book of Revelation talk about Jesus' kingdom? Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, king of kings. That's the hallelujah chorus. I'm not going to ask you to stand up, but that's the, where the hallelujah chorus comes from. I'm trying to make sure you're awake this morning, okay? So what's the bottom line here? The bottom line is that Gabriel announces to Mary, this peasant girl that nobody knew about, probably 13, 14 years old, says to her, you're a virgin, but you're going to have a son, and this son's going to be God in the flesh, in the lineage of David. He's going to have an eternal kingdom. By the way, Mary, you're going to conceive the long-awaited Messiah. Okay, so let's look at the third thing that happens here, the extraordinary response. So we've seen the obscure setting out of the place nowhere, Nazareth, young girl nobody heard about, the announcement, you're going to have a child. And then she asks the, the great question. Okay. Now think about what Mary has had to take in both emotionally and theologically. Emotionally and theologically. Emotionally, just taking in the fact that the angel's telling you you're going to have a child. And then theologically, now wait a minute, this child's going to be the Messiah. All the things that are coming through her mind. And then she asks the great question. In verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, the ESV uses the word virgin there. In the original Greek text, it says, how shall this be since I've never had sex with a man? That's what it literally says in the Greek text. She's putting two and two together. Um, I'm betrothed to Joseph, but we've not had sex yet. That, that's impossible. Now, it says Mary was pledged. Go back up to verse 27. A virgin betrothed or pledged to a man named Joseph. Now, what is this betrothal in the ancient culture? Okay, here's what it meant. Mary agreed to marry Joseph, and she was pledged to him in a betrothal. And in that culture, what that meant was you were legally bound to Joseph, and to divorce him even before you were married would be considered adultery. So you would be betrothed for probably about a year, but two things would happen in that year. Number one, you would not have sex and consummate the marriage. And number two, you would not live together, but you would still be engaged. So it was kind of like you were officially married, but you weren't technically living together and experiencing life as a married couple. So she's betrothed to Joseph. In other words, here's the interesting thing about Mary. Mary's unlike a lot of teenage girls today. And she says, listen, angel, this is impossible. I may be betrothed to this guy, but we have not slept together. 
and I have no intention of sleeping together because I'm a good Israelite girl and I'm not going to break the law of my Lord and do what would be ungodly. Mary is a godly young woman who was saving herself to her husband on the wedding day. And so getting pregnant would be an impossibility. So that's a, that's a fair question. How's this going to happen? Because I haven't had sex and I'm not going to have sex. So how's this going to happen? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit, and I want you to pay attention to the wording there. In verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Overshadow. It's an interesting word, overshadow. Have you ever thought about that? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her? Think about the imagery of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit was overshadowing the waters before creation. What's going to happen now? The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow or hover over the waters of Mary's womb in a new creation, the dawning of a new day, the birth of the Messiah. Remember our study in Exodus? I know it wasn't that long ago, pre-pandemic days. How did the book of Exodus end? You remember how the book of Exodus ends? What, what, what they, the whole last half of the book of Exodus is building the tabernacle, building the tabernacle, all the instructions of the tabernacle. And what happens in the very last few verses of, of Exodus? God leaves the mountain and he comes down. And what does he do? He hovers over the tabernacle. He overshadows the tabernacle with his manifest presence. In Exodus 40, 34 through 35, the cloud covered or overshadowed the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it or overshadowed it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. In the Old Testament, the Lord settled on top of the structure. He overshadowed or hovered over it. In Mary, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow, not on, but in her, in her very womb. The power of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God in all of his glory, the way that glory came down on the tabernacle, the way God's glory was in the creation, that's going to happen in Mary's womb only by the power of the Most High. Now, Mary doesn't ask for proof, does she? But Gabriel gives her some assurance. What does Gabriel tell her in verse um, 20, or verse 36. Behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and she's six months pregnant. So Mary, this, Mary, I've done something amazing. I've announced to your relative, Elizabeth, that she's going to have a child, and you know that she's been barren, and they've been praying for years to have a child. She's six months pregnant. That's amazing, Mary. But your birth's going to be even more amazing because you're a virgin. And it's going to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 37. What, is, what does the angel say to her? 
Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing's impossible with God. She says, how's this going to be? Nothing is impossible with God. This is what the angel said back to Sarah when he told her she was going to have a son, Isaac. Same exact words. Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At that appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Is anything too impossible for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? What's the answer to the rhetorical question? Is there anything too difficult for God? What's the answer? No. Nothing's too difficult for God. All things are possible with God. Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You can do all things, God. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And then later on in Luke 18, 27, Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, as a Bible-believing Christian, you must, and I'm saying this must, I don't say this a lot of times, but you must absolutely believe in the virgin birth. It's a non-negotiable. It's not up for debate. It is a dogma, not a doctrine that we can agree to disagree upon. It's part of the earliest Christian creed. It's part of the Apostles' Creed which is the foundation of our faith. What does the Apostles' Creed say? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The dogma, the absolute truth of the virgin birth is so important that to deny it's not only dangerous, but to deny it's damnable. Now, what do I mean by that? What's the danger of denying the virgin birth? If you deny the virgin birth, what are you saying? Well, number one, you're saying that Mary was immoral and had sex. You discount the miracle and you think that she and Joseph had sex and produced Jesus and that Jesus is just a mere man like you and me produced by two human parents. Okay? You also believe Luke's a liar. He's not telling the truth. Gabriel's a liar. That God's a liar. That God's not telling the truth here. But most fundamentally, when you deny the virgin birth, what are you doing? You're basically saying Jesus is not God. He's not divine. He's not who he says he is. Look at verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child, child to be born to you shall be called Holy, the Son of God. Here's the point about Jesus. He had to be born of a woman. Now, I want you to think about this. He had to be born of a woman to be fully man. He wasn't a full-grown superhero that plopped down from heaven fully grown, like in some myths, like Zeus or Superman or whatever. He was born just like you and me were born through a mother's womb. But yet... He had to be conceived of the Holy Spirit in order to be fully God. Only through his human birth through Mary is he fully man. 
Only through the conception through the Holy Spirit is he fully God. So Jesus is one person with two natures. He's fully God, absolutely God, 100% God, and he's fully and absolutely man at the same time. And the virgin birth protects the deity of Christ. So to deny the virgin birth is a huge, huge problem that you're basically denying who Jesus is as God in the flesh. But I want you to think about, look at verse 37. Nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. Can God do the impossible in your life? If God conceived in a virgin and gave birth to Jesus, and then 33 years later rose him from the dead after he died on the cross, God can do all things. Can he do all things in your life? Do you believe that? So maybe some of you here this morning are going through something that you think's impossible. It's impossible, Pastor Sean. Maybe it's a health concern. Maybe it's a financial crisis. Maybe it's a, a family relationship. Maybe it's a, a situation at work. Who knows what it is in your life, but you're looking at it and you're saying, this is impossible. And maybe you've gotten bitter against God and maybe you've gotten doubting against God and you know in your head and you, you kind of know theologically all things are possible, but you've stopped believing in the Lord. Now, let me just warn you, God's not a genie in a bottle. He's not a cosmic butler or a vending machine that you can control. It's not like you say the right prayer, then God's obligated to do the impossible. It's not the name it and claim it. But can God do the impossible? Yes. Does he always do the impossible? No. Can you control how he does that? No, but can he do that? Should you pray for that? There's nothing wrong with praying for God to do the impossible. He may or may not do it, but we need to pray and ask him. So maybe today, maybe today, you're facing something that you would say is impossible. And you just need to hear that verse 37, with God, nothing is impossible. All things are possible through our great God. Now, here's where it gets exciting to me about Mary. How's her response different than Zachariah's? Remember last week, what, what did Zachariah do? The angel came to him and said, you're going to have John the Baptist. And what did, what, did, <laughs> what did Zachariah say? I need some proof about this thing. And he was struck mute. Couldn't speak. We see some of the most powerful words of trust in the Lord come from the lips of Mary. I'm reminded of Hebrews 11.1. 1. The writer defines faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Mary is a living definition of this type of faith. Look at what she says. Think, think of all the things she's gone through. Emotionally, psychologically, theologically, the angel comes to her. And what does she say to him? What do we have as a recorded words in Scripture? Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. That's a little bit too soft. Translation. Literally, I am the slave of the Lord. Mary's saying, I'm going to absolutely surrender myself to the living God. 
I am your servant to do with whatever you ask. And then she says, may it be to me according to your word. What do we not see here in Mary? Do we see any objections? Does she say, angel, provide me some proof. This is a serious claim you're making about a virgin birth here. I've got to have some proof. God, I need some more explanation. You've got to give me more signs. Now, didn't Zechariah did that, but, but she doesn't. She says, I'm your servant. Let it be done to me according to your word. I think about some of the famous people in the Bible where God showed up to him and says, I'm choosing you for a specific task. What happened to Moses when God showed up to him at the burning bush? What did Moses say? God, choose somebody else. I have a speech impediment. God, you don't know what you're talking about. God, don't pick me. Or remember Gideon who's hiding in the luggage? He's kind of a fearful man, and the angel comes. Some some people believe it's probably Gabriel. Comes to Gideon and says, Oh, mighty man of valor, you're going to lead Israel. And what does Gideon say? Pick somebody else. He does that whole fleece thing. Like, I need need more signs here. He, He puts out the fleece with the dew. You've got all these people in the Bible that say, God, I want more. I want more proof. I need more evidence. You've got to show me a sign. And what does Mary say? I'm your servant, Lord. May it be to me according to your word. No questions asked, God. No demand for proof, God. No more further explanation. You've said it. That's all I need to hear. I'm submitting myself absolutely to you, Lord, because you've spoken, and I believe your word. I am your servant. Her response is wonderful. It's the response of true faith. It's the response of true faith. Now, obviously, this is unrepeatable. The virgin birth, the announcement, Gabriel, this is all an unrepeatable once-in-a-lifetime event surrounding the life of Christ. This is never going to happen to you and me. So let's just ask the application. How do we respond to this truth today? How do you respond to this truth today? Well, we should respond the same way Mary did. So let me just ask you a simple question. It's a simple question, but it's very difficult when you stop and think about it. Here's the question. Are you trusting Jesus for everything in your life? Are you trusting Jesus for everything in your life? And I mean everything. Are you trusting him? Okay, so you may say, what does this type of trust look like? What does this type of trust look like? Well, it looks like Mary's trust and faith, but let's, let's just look at her faith. Okay, there's three things about her faith that are the same about us if we're going to trust fully in the Lord. Here's the first. This trust can only come by sovereign grace. God's grace always comes first before our response. God always takes the initiative before our response. God sought Mary. She wasn't looking for God. God showed up to her in unexpected sovereign grace and said, you are highly favored. So if you're going to have any response of trust to the Lord, God's got to first do a work in you by sovereign grace. You need to be graced by God 
as one that doesn't deserve his grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Before you can trust in the Lord, you have to realize that you don't deserve anything and God's got to grace you with mercy out of his sheer sovereignty alone. What he did with Mary. But the second aspect of faith is this. This trust can only come in absolute dependence on Christ. What did Mary say there? I am your servant. Basically, she's saying, I'm totally committing myself to serve you, Lord. No matter what happens, I'm serving you. I'm committing my life to you as Lord. Now, what does that mean? It means that you're not in charge of your life. It means that you're bowing in submission to the Lord to be the king of your life and to rule your life and to change your life and to direct your life. And you're confessing your absolute dependence upon the Lord for everything in your life. You're saying, I'm not in control. I don't call the shots. I am the servant. I am hopeless. I am helpless. I am hellbound without you, Jesus. I'm submitting myself totally to you. That's what Mary did. I'm your servant. And then third, this trust can only come by believing and submitting to God's word. What does she say? Let it be to me according to your word. I don't protest. I don't pick and choose which parts of the Bible I'm going to believe. I don't make up the rules on the fly. I don't live by the seat of my pants. I'm going to absolutely Submit myself to your word, Lord. May it be to me according to your word. Some people give lip service to God's word, but you're really the one in charge of your life. Oh, I believe the Bible. And I would even actually say that there's some things in the Bible that I, I absolutely believe, but when it comes to how you live your life, you could care less of what the Bible says because you're calling the shots. It was read earlier during our time of confession from the lips of Jesus, Matthew 15, 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart's far from me. Are you trusting Jesus for everything in your life? Are you like a small child that stands on the counter and Jesus with his arms wide open says, do you trust me with everything? I don't know, Jesus. You're going to have to prove it to me. I don't know, Jesus. Can you? I don't know, Jesus. I kind of like living my own life. I don't know, Jesus. is pretty comfortable here on this ledge. And Jesus says again, are you trusting me with everything in your life? What's true faith? True faith, without hesitation, without negotiation, without argument, does what? You just jump. And when you jump, what do you find? Jesus catches you, doesn't he? And when Jesus catches you, he holds you, he never lets you go. And he says, it's better to be in my arms 
where I'm leading you and I'm guiding you and I'm protecting you than for you to call the shots. So I wonder how many of us are on the edge of the kitchen counter and Jesus says, do you trust me with everything? How quick are we to jump? How quick are you to jump into the arms of Jesus? Are you trusting him with everything in your life? Mary did. And she has a high place of being the mother of our Savior. Would we have that same type of faith? So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and let's spend some time in prayer. to trust you with everything. We like to pick and choose how we're going to trust. We like to pick and choose what areas we give over to you. We like to negotiate. We like to demand proof. We like to be in the driver's seat, Lord. But I, I look at Mary here. All she said is, I'm your servant. May it be to me according to your word. Lord, let that be our, our response as well. Lord, I'm your servant. Whatever you say, I'm going to do. And may it be according to your word. I'm not going to protest. I'm just going to believe. I'm going to trust. I'm going to follow. And Lord, we know those times when we do not follow you, when we make up our own plans and we do the wrong thing, it doesn't end well for us. Help us to trust your strong arms, Jesus. Help us this week to jump off the kitchen counter into your arms and trust you for everything. That you're our great God. You're our great Savior. Lord, if there's anybody here today that is, is really facing something that they feel is impossible, would they just hear this message that nothing is impossible with you, God? You can meet them at their point of need. You can do a great work in their lives. Lord, help them to know that you're the God of the impossible. Help us to trust you. We thank you that you're a strong Savior. We love you, we honor you, and we praise you. And it's in the strong name of Jesus that we ask these things. Amen and amen.